So he said, be like-minded as Christ was. And what did he do? God so loved the world, the whole world, that he gave Christ to be the sacrifice for all races. Doesn't matter whatsoever. Verse 6, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Christ Emmanuel. So if we are racially divided, or divided over other issues, such as wine, or meat, or whatever, uh, we need to solve that. We need to fix that, so that we become one mind, thinking the same, saying the same. One mind and one mouth. With that, glorify God. Uh, So the whole purpose here is that everything we do needs to ultimately glorify God. And the way we treat each other is a great part of that, because he says the way you treat each other is the way I will treat you. Verse 7, Wherefore receive you one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So don't make uh, judgments out of partiality because of race. That's been the subject all the way through or any of these other things we've just discussed. If God's willing to accept Jew and Gentile, we should be able to accept one another. That should be clear. Wherefore, receive you one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Christ Emmanuel was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. So Christ became a servant to the circumcised first, and to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile, as said many places through the Bible. So he came to, first of all, uh, fulfill the promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and so on, uh, because that's where he decided to work. Now the Gentiles resent where God decided to work, uh, Hagar and her son Ishmael decided to be jealous of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and on down. And they're still jealous of those whom God worked through first. They're missing the point that God said, I will work with the others later. So we still have great racial divides throughout mankind. And that isn't what God wants because that which he kept separate for the most part of the Old Testament, now he says, let's all come together and live in peace among ourselves. So he's laying something heavier on us than than what was in the Old Testament, but we have the Spirit of God to be sure that that can be done. Verse 9, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, that he also included them. As it is written, for this cause I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So there are, there are promises in the Old Testament, that's clear back in Second Samuel 20, that he's quoting, that he will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So God had planned all along to call the Gentiles when the time was right, and he did. And then he called an apostle to teach them, who was Paul, who was not a Gentile, 
So the Jews had to accept the Gentiles, and the Gentiles had to accept the Jews. But that did, that did not come easy. So it takes work. And then he quotes another one, verse 11. And again, praise the eternal, all you Gentiles, and laud or worship him, all you people. That's from Psalm 117, verse 1. So he's quoting these scriptures from the Old Testament, which gave credence and support and first right to the Jew or to the Israelite. But sprinkled throughout the Old Testament are these scriptures that say the Gentiles will also be included when the time is right. And he quotes another one in verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall ra- that was David's father, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall be, or shall the Gentiles trust. So he says, even clear back there in Isaiah, that the Gentiles will trust Christ. That's from Isaiah 11, where we just read the other day. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's laying out here what they were facing, which was a very difficult situation to meld Jew and Gentile who had racial hatred between themselves into a congregation to love one another, to support each other, to help each other, and make sure that we all head toward the kingdom of God. So he knows that he's asking something quite large here. But he says you can do it through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. We're not supposed to give offense, and we're not supposed to take offense. Either one, either direction. If we do, we have to repent of that regardless. That's what he's trying to get across. So abound in hope in the Holy Spirit, all of you, he says. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. So he says, I'm going to remind you here that you've been given an awful lot of truth. You've been given a great deal to work with. And I am calling upon you to use the goodness you learn from God uh, to help, to admonish one another, and so on. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly to you in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God. So he says, I know I'm being bold here, and I'm telling you to get rid of feelings and emotions that you have had all your lives. You Jews have called Gentiles dogs and looked down upon them. And you Gentiles have resented and despised Israel because of the blessings God gave them. So he says, I know this is not easy, but I'm being bold about it because God has given me uh, the commission and the capacity and the opportunity to teach you these things that I should be the minister of Christ Emmanuel to the Gentiles. He says, that was given to me as a commission from God. 
that I should come and tell you these things, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So you Jews can't look down on the Gentiles, because by the Holy Spirit and the grace and mercy of God, you've all been included. And I was sent specifically, he says, as the one to teach the Gentiles, being a Jew. But remember, that did not come easy for him either. He had been struck blind and caused to be converted. And then Christ took him out and taught him and told him, Now, I want you to go be uh, the apostle to the ones you've been persecuting, (laughs) including the church, not just Gentile people. So he had learned a pretty hard lesson there. And then he says, Now I was sent to teach you the same lesson. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not worked by me, to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed. He says, This is not my personal opinion I'm bringing to you. I wouldn't dare to speak anything except Christ had given it to me. Right? If Christ gave it to me, I have to speak it. Therefore, he said, I do. And the purpose is that the Gentiles might also become obedient by word and deed and qualify for the kingdom of God. Verse 19, Through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And there had been some signs and wonders that went, went with that. But he, he says, I've, everything he gave me, I've taught you. I've taught it everywhere I've gone. Everything he gave me, and I'm not about to teach you anything that he didn't give me. Yes, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. So he wasn't going to those places where the other apostles had gone. He was going to places they hadn't been for the most part. Uh, Of course, there was a mix of people who were being converted. You remember in Acts 2 that there were people gathered for the holy days for Pentecost from all over the place with different cultures and backgrounds, uh, both Jew and Gentile, and they were all there. Although I, I presume, and I think it would be true, that most of them were of Israelite or Jewish blood, even though they may have been from Gentile countries, because Christ had only taught the twelve, plus those who were there, and it had not yet really gone to the Gentiles, but it did soon thereafter. So, wherever Paul spoke, there were a certain amount of Israelites, apparently, uh, who were being converted along with Gentiles in places like Rome. So, he was speaking to a mixed audience. Uh, but he was, he was saying, I am doing the job Christ gave me to do. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see. And they that have not heard shall understand. That's from Isaiah 52:15. So he keeps quoting these Old Testament scriptures, saying that this was foretold long ago that the Gentiles would be included. 
So what did that do? It took the ammo away from the Jews who says, well, what are you doing teaching the, Israel, the, the, the Gentiles? Well, it was said back in Samuel and Isaiah and the Psalms and all the way through that this would be done. Now it's happening, so accept it. For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. He doesn't talk about the hindrances here. He mentions in another place how Satan had hindered him from going to a certain place uh, because Satan didn't. Satan had the Gentiles pretty much in his pocket. They didn't really know about Christ or God, and he certainly would not want them to learn and be converted and to be saved. So he would hinder Paul in various ways, wherever he could, uh, by circumstances, shipwrecks, by attitudes that people might have, or whatever, uh, he would be hindered. But now having no more place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come to you. So he had been wanting to, to go to Rome for a long time, and he hadn't been able to get there for various and sundry reasons, whatever they may have been. So then he lays out his plan. He says, Whensoever I take my journey to Spain, I will come to you, for I trust to see you on my journey and to be brought on my way there by you. So he had planned a, a longer trip and intended to include them when he went. But now I go to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. So, he was the apostle to the Gentile, but he also ministered to the saints at Jerusalem at times. Now, whether he was coming over here to this Jerusalem or going to the Arab Jerusalem in the Middle East, where a lot of Israelites had been taken captive and were there, so he could preach to Israelites in that Jerusalem or this Jerusalem, doesn't say. Uh, I have no doubt he was in the Mediterranean area, area because that's where he preached to the Gentiles, and Cyprus and Crete and those countries, Greece, are there. So he did go to the Mediterranean area, and probably to that Jerusalem over there as well, because there were Israelites there. There was there, We've seen no evidence by archaeologists that there were any Israelites in the Middle East before 1600 B.C., but they were there after that, <clears throat> when they had been taken from the promised land by ship into Gentile worlds, and there they settled. And then later on, they moved into northwest Europe. And then finally, God opened it up and let us come back here. So we had been taken away and uh, have been in that area. So it's, it's sort of hard, hard to sort it all out exactly what was happening when and by whom, and in which part of the world it occurred. <clears throat> but there's no doubt that they went back and forth. There was a great deal of travel on the, the seas in those days. So anyway, when I go to Spain, I'm going to come see you, was his plan. Uh, verse 26, For it has pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. Uh, there was drought, and I, I would assume this is probably the Middle East Jerusalem he's talking about. There was a drought there. Remember, that was a desert, and it wasn't the Promised Land. Uh, so there were, there were problems there of having enough food, and he was going to take food to them. 
So he says the people elsewhere have made a contribution to the poor saints, which are at Jerusalem. It has pleased them truly, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in carnal things. So Paul says you need to give thanksgiving to the Jews and Israel, uh, that God has used them now to bring the truth to you. But having brought you the truth, uh, they now are serving you by sending food to you with the material, physical things. So what we do for each other can be spiritual. It can also be material because we're still physical and still have physical needs. And whichever Jerusalem this one was, there were people there who were hungry. Uh, when therefore I perform this and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. So he was sealing it or packaging it uh, to be sent to Jerusalem. I would assume this was probably dried fruit. If you were sending peaches and apples and uh, things of that nature fresh, they wouldn't have been very fresh when they got there. So this was probably uh, dried, I would, I would suspect. Verse 29, I am sure that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. So he tells them why he's coming. It's not just because they're nice people. He's coming because they've been called of God, and he is bringing the gospel of Christ as a blessing to them. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Because I've been hindered, I've been trying to get there, I couldn't, I'm going to send this fruit to people who are starving, then I'm going to take a long trip to Spain and come back to you in Rome and pray that this time I get there. So, should we pray for each other's peace and safety and travel and so on? Yeah, there's an example right here where he was asking them to pray for him as he traveled uh, because there are hazards. Shipwreck, piracy, uh, disease, same thing today. Planes can crash and cars can crash and things can happen. So we need to pray for one another. Uh, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea. He says there's also the danger of getting stoned or killed or put in jail, uh, which were things that he had faced and would face. So hazardous travel and hazardous people. And that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints. That would be, I suppose, the fruit he was sending that they would accept it, and I, I'm sure that they did. I can't see any reason why they wouldn't, but he may be also referring to the spiritual service that he was giving to the Romans and the other Gentiles, that that would be acceptable to the Jews and Israelites at Jerusalem as well. Because it wasn't just Rome where they had problems getting along and accepting one another. It was everywhere. Uh, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may with you be refreshed. So he says maybe we can spark uh, spirituality in one another. 
uh, and that he might come to them in joy. Now he's given them a, he's given them some pretty straight and pretty direct instruction here, and he's hoping that they receive it well, and that they will then receive him well, and that they can come together in joy and not be at war, because that's not where we're supposed to be. We should work it out and make things joyful. That's the fruit of the Spirit, not the work of the flesh. Uh, now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So that's the end of that uh, instruction he was giving. And now he's going to pass along some uh, desire that they think of others. Uh, names quite a few here, which is interesting takes up a whole chapter in the Bible, just saying, greet so-and-so and salute so-and-so and remember such-and-such. Well, why did God include that? I mean, that takes up a whole page in the Bible, just saying, say hi. <laughs> well, I guess it must be pretty important that we think of one another, that we think well of one another, and we say, say hello to so-and-so for me. Uh, because that's what Paul did, and that's what he set an example for us to do. So we'll kind of go through it here. He says, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, was at uh, Zincrea. So he passes out thanks for the service of this one lady, singles her out. She must have been quite the servant. So Paul says, I, I'm going to recognize the service that she does, and I hope that you do too. And not only that is implied that you be like her and be of service and help to others as she is. Why not just give her name? But no, he indicates that she's a, a true servant and that that deserves some mention. That you receive her in the eternal as become saints, and that you assist her in whatsoever business she has need of you, for she has been a succorer of many, and of myself also. So she served many other people. She served me, he says, and uh, taken care of me. That reminds me of the story there of Elijah, where the, the widow with the young son took him into her house for a whole year. Uh, so she was of great service to Elijah in that circumstance, and uh, this lady was a true servant as well. Uh, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ. I think they're mentioned somewhere else. Is maybe it's uh, where they met in their house. I'm not sure, uh, but I think they're mentioned somewhere else, uh, as I recall who have for my life laid down their own necks, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Now, in this list that he's mentioning here, I, I, I'm curious how many were Gentiles that he's giving accolades to, and how many were Israelites. I'll bet there's a mix. So he's showing that the service comes from all races, because that's what this whole book's been about. But Priscilla and Aquila laid down their own necks. They risked their lives for him. That's what it's saying. And 
perhaps some of the churches of the Gentiles had done the same, just as Priscilla and Aquila did. Maybe they were Gentiles, and other Gentiles had done the same things that they had done, but they had stood out in his mind and probably, in a very, very real way, risked their own lives for his sake. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Yeah, there he mentions the church in their house. Maybe that's what I was uh, thinking of. Salute my well-beloved Eponidas, who is the first fruits of Achaia unto Christ. So, apparently the first convert in that area. Greet Mary, who bestowed much labor on us, served us well when we were there. Salute Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. So, were they literally his kin, or were they adopted as brothers in Christ? Doesn't really say. But the apostles were aware of those two because of what they had done. They had been of apparently great service, maybe to the whole church, and all the apostles knew of them as a result of it. Must have been pretty meritorious service to be given that kind of recognition. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Doesn't say beloved for what or anything, but someone he had great affection and feeling for, apparently. I don't know whether that's male or female, but uh, beloved in any case. Salute Urbane, our helper in Christ, and Stachius, my beloved. Again, he doesn't give all the reasons, but apparently they were of note for whatever reason. Salute uh, Apelles, approved in Christ. Approved by whom? By the Apostle Paul, the other ministry, I suppose, who recognized that the conversion that they needed was there. Uh, Salute Herodian, my kinsman. Again mentions kinsman. Greet him that be of the household of Narcissus, which are in the eternal wonder if that's where narcissism came from. doesn't sound like it. Narcissus was the, the name, but they apparently were not uh, that much self-involved. They were involved in the church of God, in the eternal. Salute Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labor in the eternal. Salute the beloved Persis, which labors much in the Lord. And then he says, salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. I had a dog named Rufus for many, many years. And when John Reed would call me, he'd, as we signed off a lot of times, he'd say, salute Rufus for me. <laughs> Just as his little, his little joke, which was cute. Rufus wasn't chosen in the Lord, my dog, but uh, this Rufus was. <clears throat> salute Asyncritus. Ali, John, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren which are with them. A lot of these people may have been right there in the church of Rome. And he was singling out different ones to to say hello to. And Philogius, and Julia, and Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints which are with them. So that was another group somewhere, another household of people. Maybe a different city, doesn't say. 
it may have been mostly in other cities that were close enough that they had some contact with, because he says, salute one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. So, maybe we need to start saluting one another with a holy kiss and hug. It's kind of uh, not quite our culture. There are some cultures where the men hug each other and kiss each other on the cheek and everybody does it. Not thought of as anything wrong or out of line. It's just a cultural thing that everybody does. You do that in America and everybody says, Oh, the horror! Because, you know, and I, and I don't really uh, look forward to men coming up and kissing me on the cheek. Although, every once in a while, one does. And, and it's not in a wrong way. It's just a man hug and a peck on the cheek. We had a who was where was that a guy that came to the feast here one time or was that back in in uh, Church of the Great God? I think it was clear back then. But oh yeah, I was down in Florida. But he had this doctrine that we should all, since it says this, that we all needed to start kissing each other, men, women, and children. When we saw each other, would give them the, whatever the holy kiss was. It may have been just a peck on the cheek. But he thought we all ought to do it. And uh, how do we interpret that in our culture today? Because a lot of people would be uh, offended by it. The Italians think nothing of it. The Arabs think nothing of it. They do it all the time to each other. But I don't want George kissing me on the cheek. <laughs> you know, it's just somehow... My my psyche, my culture does not accept that. So what do we do? Uh, we don't have to accept that culture, whatever it is, but we need to salute one another with friendliness and love and kindness and uh, maybe a handshake or a, or a hug is acceptable to most Americans. But whatever the holy kiss was, probably would not be acceptable to most Americans. They would be horrified and offended by such. Uh, let's see, where was I anyway before I got off on that? Down to getting into 17. A uh, little more instruction here. <clears throat> now we be, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offense. Contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. So he's given them an awful lot of instruction and doctrine here, and the the greatest part of it was having to do with race, and accepting one another, and loving one another, no matter what our parentage was. Or if there were other issues in doctrine, uh, such as drinking alcohol, whether you could eat flesh or not, uh, whether somebody kept Thanksgiving or not. Uh, he says, be careful, but be sure that you follow the doctrines you've been taught. And if people are not willing to follow those doctrines, then they are to be avoided. Because uh, that which is weak, or that which is improper, or that which is unlawful, is done and becomes acceptable, then it pulls people away. So, uh, we're here to be of one hope, one mind, one body in Christ. And if people pull away from the things that we've been taught, then they should be marked and not 
have anything to do with. And then he writes a letter to the Corinthians, and in chapter 5 there's an example of that, of someone who was in incest apparently, a little more than a holy kiss there, and uh, had to be put out. So he's saying we need to be careful that we are all on the same page, doing the same things, and if somebody blatantly decides to be different, and believe differently, then we need to avoid them and stay away from them. Now, that is in the light of, having said, be careful to accept a weak brother or someone who does not have faith in certain areas yet or hasn't learned everything yet. Be careful with them. But if they just blatantly are going against what has been taught by the proper ministry, uh, then they are to be marked and avoided. So we have to, if if confusion is beyond weakness or beyond a learning curve, and people are stirring up strife and trouble and division by something that they disagree with, then out with them. And that was the example he set, and that's what he said should be done here. So he says, and, and kind of in summary, I've, I've given you what you ought to be doing here. Now get it done. And if anybody wants to play the race card over and over and will not accept this, then avoid them. Uh, what did the Apostle John say? If they come and bring not this doctrine, neither accept them in your house nor bid them God's feet. We all need to be on the same page ultimately. For they that are such serve not our Lord the Christ, but their own belly. They're more interested in themselves than in others. And what might be good for them or what they want. And he had said that Christ put himself, uh, did not put himself ahead of others, but submitted to others. He didn't please himself. So he repeats that here. It, it isn't about getting ourselves pleased. It's about trying to help and please and and serve others. Uh, Not the self. And by good words and fair speeches, deceive the hearts of the simple. Uh, You can have those that are selfish and they're not truly giving. They may be making a show of it. But it is that subtlety and that pushing of their own agenda behind the scenes. And they have these good words and fair speeches but they're still trying to steal the land, you know. Whatever it might be that they're trying to do, they're all friendly and all, oh, yeah, everything's fine here. Uh, but they're doing something they should not be doing. That's just the first example that comes to mind because it's it's here right now. But people can often have an agenda that they're trying to get done, and it's hard to recognize because they are <coughs> subtle and foxy about how they go about it instead of being straightforward, let your yes be yes and your no be no, and uh, not try to deceive and hide and do things that shouldn't be done. Speak kindly to your face and stab you in the back. And that's what people tend to do with race as well. Uh, You know, I'll, I'll accept you to your face and then I'll talk about you behind your back. One of the key issues in this book. For your obedience has come abroad to all men. 
I am glad, therefore, on your behalf. So he says, even though I've been getting on you and trying to teach you and <clears throat> correct you, uh, you're not all bad. <clears throat> your, your goodness has gone out and you've been spoken well of. So there's, there's hardly anybody that's really all bad. Uh, everybody has some good qualities, and they had some, but there were some things that needed to be corrected as well. <clears throat> and he says, The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. He's there hindering me. He's there hindering you. But pretty soon, he says, Christ is going to take care of that. And I think we could echo that even more so 2,000 years down the road uh, than what Paul understood when he wrote that. Because he thought that the millennium would start and Christ would bind Satan within his lifetime when he wrote this. So, was Paul a false prophet because he didn't know it was 2,000 years away? No. Is Christ going to do exactly what Paul said, bruise Satan under our feet? Yep. He just had the timing wrong. So, that isn't a sin. Uh, it's a misunderstanding, but not a sin. And it doesn't make you a false prophet. Uh, Herbert Armstrong is not a false prophet because he didn't understand that 1972 or 5 was not the year. But people have called him that because of it. No, he understood a panoply of events that would occur in the, in the prophecies. He didn't understand them as well as we do now, 30 years down the road, but he understood a certain amount and he preached to the limit of his vision, which is what Christ tells us all to do if, if we're teachers. And if you don't understand something, maybe you'll learn it later. But not a false prophet teaching against God's way. And Paul certainly wasn't that. So what did he say? Your, your obedience has come abroad to all men. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf. But yet I would have you wise to that which is good and simple concerning evil. We might look at somebody and say, well, that person's naive. They don't understand evil. Do we need to understand evil? Why do you really need to understand evil? If you understand good and follow good, that's all you really need. Would Adam and Eve have been better off had they never understood evil? <laughs> oh my! Life would have been a whole lot better and they wouldn't have had to die. So God wants us to be experts in good and not know much about evil. So we shouldn't let our minds go to evil. We should not let them play there. We should not uh, think those things. What does he say in Philippians 4.8? Think on those things which are good. Which are, let me go back there for a moment. Let's read that again. We haven't in a while. Because it fits perfectly what he's saying. <clears throat> Tells us in verse 6 to be in supplication and thanksgiving to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ. So then he says, whatsoever things are true, that is, and that doesn't mean that I know you sinned. That's not the kind of truth he's talking about. What he's talking about there is things which are uh, true, means pure and good and right. 
So you think on those things. Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just and pure and lovely, and whatever is of a good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. What do we tend as human beings to think of? Anything evil, anything bad, anything that somebody might have done that we think is sin. That's what we like to think about. We like to dote on evil as human, natural beings. That's where we go. But he says, that's not what you're supposed to think about. Think about these things. And Paul is telling the Romans the exact same thing back here. He didn't go into detail about it. He went into detail about it. Same, same author in Philippians. But here he's at the end of the book. And he's giving some parting advice. That we should be beginners in evil and experts in good. So is, is it bad to be naive? Well, you can get yourself in trouble being naive, certainly. But uh, he says, be, the, the, the better translation here in, in verse 19 is, be harmless concerning evil. Uh, evil happens. You may see evil. But if you do, be harmless in what you have seen. You don't go around gossiping and telling everybody about evil that you saw, because that harms. So be harmless in evil. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly, and grace be with you, he says. Amen. And then he goes on uh, about the work, talks about the work that he's doing, and the work God gave him to do. So announcements about the work aren't necessarily wrong. Talks about Timothy, my work fellow, and Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman, salute you. So he's sending, he tells them to give salutations, and then he says, the ones that are here with me also salute you. So we're exchanging greetings here is what it amounts to. Uh, and goes on down and, and names them. Uh, and even the whole church, verse 28, uh, and Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, salutes you, and Quartus, a brother. So then in 24, he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Uh, now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Emmanuel according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began. Here again, he's talking about the mystery of salvation uh, that Herbert Armstrong preached about because no one really understood until that mystery was revealed uh, to the apostles that we are to become God. But now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. So what he's really saying here is this mystery of God and of salvation was spoken of by the prophets, but nobody understood it. And now he says, I'm going back to the Old Testament to show you Jews and Gentiles that what I'm preaching was spoken of way back then. 
And now, we're under a New Testament, a new agreement, but the things that applied back there still apply today. So we have to understand them in the light of that. Uh, are there sacrifices today? Yes. They sacrificed bulls and goats back then, but Christ became a sacrifice that replaced all of those, and now he tells us to become a living sacrifice, to sacrifice our time, our thought, our prayers, to the benefit and good of others. So that's a more worthwhile sacrifice than going out and killing a sheep or a goat, because it might help somebody where... Killing a sheep or a goat doesn't help anybody. So, the transition by principle of all that's in the Old Testament is to be done. You don't do in the letter everything that was done in the Old Testament, but in principle, you do. There are still sacrifices, and you're the animal that gets sacrificed as a living, not a dead sacrifice. Because living... You can sacrifice your time and energy and prayer for others. Dead, you don't do anybody any good. So, he says then, to God only, wise, be glory through Emmanuel of Christ forever. And what more could you say than that? So be it, or amen. So, well, we got a little extra time, but I go over some time, so... That's the end of the book, so let's just stop there and sing a song to God. Brethren, let's take our hymnals and turn to page 96. Unless the Lord shall build the house. Page 96, following this.